Hello and welcome to the My Favourite Film Podcast with me, your host, Gav Smith. In this first episode, I will be talking to Mick Hill about the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's a very waffly conversation where we talk about the film in spoilerific detail. So if you haven't seen it, I'd suggest you go and watch it and then come back. Mick works in internal communications and is a self-confessed music geek. As for the film, this is a 1978 classic by Steven Spielberg, written and directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Richard Dreyfuss as Roy Neary, a man who has close encounters of the first kind, the second kind, and then finally the third kind, which is hence the name of the film. It's a very waffly conversation, as I said earlier, so let's get straight on into it, and this is my conversation with Mick. How are you, Mick? Hi, Gav. Thank you for uh, inviting me to be your first honorary guest. I know. First podcast. And you're it. You're, you're the star. I, I, I feel more honoured than at any time in my life, Gavin. Wow. wow. More honoured. Wow. You are, that... in fact, is so honoured that Dave the cat has come <laughs> to sit on my left-hand shoulder and wow. monitor that we do this correctly. It's good that someone's monitoring it because obviously, if no one monitors it, anything could happen, and that might be a bad thing. But we'll see. <laughs> so, I've been anticipating this all week, right? <laughs> obviously, we're going to talk about my favourite film. We are. That's the plan. Now, here's the thing: when you get to fifty-three, yes, your memory starts to go. So, actually, I had to watch the film again. <laughs> Yesterday and today. Oh, you've watched it twice since we No, I, I got halfway through yesterday and um, just life happened. Um, <laughs> so then I had to pause it and then start again this afternoon. Right. Just to remind myself that I do like this film and <laughs> what were the key core, core components of it that I really liked. And then obviously I've had to go onto Wikipedia to find out um, <laughs> all of the elements of one. I've got... IMDB open just in case I need to remember <laughs> for any of the actors' names or characters' names. And, you know, if you want me to name the Dolly Grip at mm. any point during this conversation, mm. it will take me a matter of seconds to find out their name. It's good to know that you've got that open because I don't have IMDB open, but I can okay. have if I need to. Okay. Um, I'm not going to ask you who the Dolly Grip is, even though that would be a fascinating fact to have on the, um, the podcast, I'm sure. What I am going to ask you, because I have rewatched it as well, and I must admit, um, I remember watching it as a teenager. I'm not 53. I'm only 50 this year, so I'm not that far behind you. But I remember watching it as a teenager, um, and I think I've only seen it one other time since then, other than Friday wow. night. It's quite surprising. How have you even avoided this film? Um, well, I know I watched it as a teenager, and I remember why it took me so long to watch it again. Because <laughs> as a teenager, I was, I was massively disappointed by the end. Oh, okay. Because and actually, because I watched it with my daughter um, on Friday night, and she was also disappointed by the end because it's so. It just finishes. He okay, gets in the spaceship so... and it flies away, and that's it. That's that's a good point. Then probably to tell people about the film we're watching. Um, because... Yeah, I'm going to say that it is a it's a spoilerific podcast, so don't worry. It, I if you listen to it, you're going to find out all about the film. Crikey. Yes. Absolutely. All right, that is fine. So, so in answer to your question then about, or your point about the disappointment of the ending, yeah, the interesting thing is the studio also had the same 
disappointment with the ending. And the <laughs> film was actually re-released um, at the, oh God, I think it was 1980, according to IMDb, All with right. a new ending. Ah, the special and edition. The special edition. And in that new ending, Roy actually goes in the spaceship and you actually see, I think it's probably something like, I don't know, a minute or 90 seconds worth of inside the alien spaceship. And yes. actually, do you know what? I really like that. It's pretty cool. Right. Um, but did you know that Mr. Spielberg didn't like that ending? Ah. And so, oh, God, 10 years later, yeah. he redid the whole thing yeah. as director's cut. I knew there was director's cut as well, yeah. Yeah. So basically the director's cut is little bits that he liked from that he had to refilm for the special edition and he took some bits out and left some bits in. But he took away that ending. And like me, he prefers the ending where they just finish. Yes. I'd see why. Because, like I say, I was, I was thinking back as a teenager, I was disappointed by that fact. It was just that. But that's probably my teenage brain. And Ella obviously has a teenage brain as well. Which is probably why she was thinking, I just want to know what happens next. But actually, yeah. on thinking about it later, I thought, actually, you know what? I don't need to know what happens next. He got in and they flew away. And actually, let's hope he has a lovely life with the aliens and all worked out well. Um, and everyone back on, at home was all okay as well. Slightly worried about his wife and kids, obviously, who don't even know where he's gone. Really? But, you know, that's happened. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's a very interesting film. Why is it your favourite film? I think it's a big question. Because you said it's your favourite. Why is this your favourite film? It's a good, it is a really good question. And I suppose the context really needs to be about when it came out, how old was I, what was going on in my life at the time, and what was the world like? So, yeah, very different world. Well, yeah, this film came out in 1977. Um, So, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Doncaster, you know, grim place. Yes. You know, lovely people, um, but, you know, it was a, a mining town. Um, you know, it was a lo- lovely place to live, but, you know, it was the north of England. It wasn't very extravagant. We didn't have much um, in the way of aliens coming and landing <laughs> there and taking notes of, you know, what life must be like in, in Doncaster. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, for me growing up, um, it was, I, I was fascinated by, the unusual, I was fascinated, I was drawn to really understanding a little bit more than what was going on in the real world. Now, I suppose part of this is, and this is a really bizarre thing to say, I think Close Encounters is almost like a coming out film. Oh, right, think, okay. So I think for me, as, a, as a, um, a, a gay child who knew he was gay at the age of nine in Doncaster, yep. I knew that there was something in the world more than what I saw. So, you know, my, my, I suppose growing up, it was a case of, I didn't have role models. The role models I saw were your kind of um, camp nonsenses and comedians, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So the world around me didn't ring true to who I was. There was something there in the world that didn't fit with who I was. And so I was attracted to science fiction. So I, I, I couldn't get enough of Arthur C. Clarke's books. Even, you know, as soon as I started to read, I started reading science fiction and fantasy. Um, 
you know, I was introduced to Tolkien at school. Um, so I, I read The Hobbit and then immediately went on to The Lord of the Rings. Clearly gave up at the Silmarillion because it was just nonsense. But <laughs> Lord of the Rings became my favourite book at the age of eight. You know, it's yeah. a big, big book for an eight-year-old. It is. Definitely is. Um, and so everything about my life was about, there's, there's something more than this. this. This life that I'm living isn't true for me. Right. And, and I think that, you know, when I saw um, Star Wars... Yeah. Anyone that knows me isn't going to be shocked by this, but I think being a big science fiction fan, I hated Star Wars. Oh my yeah. God, what a boring film. Yeah. And because it didn't capture my imagination through relationships, it didn't capture my imagination through characters that I identified with. It was so alien yeah. and so yeah. different. I didn't feel that was part of my life. Yeah. No, well, Spiel- Spielberg heard it as well which is one of the reasons why he did Close Counters where he did, because it was all a reaction against the metallic, as he called it, look of Star Wars. Yeah. Because the designer of the spaceship in Close Encounters is the same designer who did all the Star Wars ships. Yeah, Doug Trumbull. Same, yeah. same model maker, but obviously he was put in a different position of, I must make these different and make them not as metallic and glow a bit more and whatever else. There's no warmth in Star Wars. No, it's not. It's very cold and military yeah, it, type yeah it's a head film not a heart film yeah and and if you look at anything that's um spielberg's done i think you can only ever say he's a heart director absolutely uh, anything that he makes really pulls at the, the, the heartstrings yeah um, if you're going to cry at a film it'd be a spielberg film yes definitely definitely <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I was near i was nearly there on friday night when i was watching this i must admit because there are elements of it that you are absolutely yeah. drawn into. And I know I spoke to you a bit about the pacing of this, how yes. slow it is compared to sort of modern films. Um, but it's, it's the right pacing. Now, there's two things that I really wanted to talk about. Um, Go on. Um, but one of them, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the, the special um, effect designer, uh, Bill yeah. Trumbull. My second favourite film is Silent Running. Mm. Now... Silent Running was made um, in the, uh, crikey, what, I'm going to say 71. It's probably 69, but, you know, around about late 60s, early 70s. Um, I think you're probably right. but That's a real heart film as well. Oh, it is. It is. I love Silent Running. I cry at the end of that film, as soon as Joan Bay sings that, uh, whatever the beautiful song is that I've never been able to find, as soon as her mouth opens and you see the, the little robot just sat on its own in the garden yeah. going through space. Yes. The tears just well, and yeah. I love that film. Yeah, because the, the, the robots in that, the three robots, are just absolutely the main characters almost. They become oh, this... Oh, Huey, and Louie. Oh, yeah. totally. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, that, so that's my second favourite film. 72, um, by the way. 72. Just oh, a little thing there. 72 was Helen running. <laughs> So, yeah, um, and I think that was Doug Trumbull directed it as well. So I think, you know, he was given the special effects and also making the film. Yes, it was. It was Doug Trumbull. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so he then went on to, obviously, Star Wars, Yawn, um, and then Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There's another one that around the time as well, which was Star Trek, the um, motion picture. Again, all of that. I think Star Trek is very much a heart thing as well. So there's emotions in that. Because, again, from the same point of view as Close Encounters, Star Trek Motion Picture is quite a slow film. Oh, my God. And you spend a lot of time with the characters, getting to know them, getting reintroduced to them almost, because it was 
it was Star Trek for a different generation. They were kind of going, do you know what? Those people are sought back in the sixties. Possibly don't know it now. Let's restart it. Re give them all this yep. stuff and show them again what the character is like. Yep. Especially with the likes of uh, Nimoy, because obviously uh, yeah. Nimoy wasn't going to be in it. Took a long time to get Spock on board, as were. Um, and literally. Some different characters in there to try and fill in that gap that Spock was going to leave if he hadn't been in it. Yeah. I mean, I think that was that one. Right, okay. Was that 78, 79? Oh, I'm going to have to do a... Do it, do it quickly because th- there was these. There were the three films that came out: Star Wars, seventy nine Star Trek. That was Christmas. Yeah. Then there was Close Encounters. Yeah. So that was seventy eight, beginning seventy eight. Yeah. And then there was Star Trek, seventy nine. Seventy nine. Yeah. 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 So, I, I, I think you talk about pacing. I, 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 I'm quite. I love a slow film. This is really bizarre because, you know, when you when you talk to people of your generation and younger, I know you're my generation. I'm your generation. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a granddad. There's only um, three no. years in it, Mick. <laughs> okay, so so my mates who are like a decade younger, yeah, the Goonies generation. So yes. you know, if you ask most of my friends what their favourite film is, there yeah. isn't a shadow of doubt. All of them will say the Goonies. The Goonies. I watch that now. What the hell is that all about? There's no interest for me in that whatsoever. The thing about the Goonies is that it's quick, 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 quick. I was kind of thinking, because you mentioned the pacing. Yeah. The generation today watching Star, uh, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, would be so bored. Yes. And I think just because Michael Bay exists, I think that's what's happened. Michael Bay has taken over the world. And I was thinking, what would Michael Bay do with Close Encounters? I mean, cut about it, half an hour. Oh God, no! It would be six minutes long. Yeah, there's, maybe there's not yeah. enough to, in there. He, <laughs> he would have the aliens in the first two minutes. Yeah, um, and then they would actually attack and they destroy would attack, the planet, probably. Absolutely, yeah. James Dr- Richard Dreyfus rather would end up being some sort of hero, superhero action <laughs> star at the end. And yeah, yeah. Shooting all the aliens. Um, you know, uh, imagine the, the soundtrack though. It would be some kind of hip hoppy fried. <laughs> and then it would go into this kind of militaristic, really loud, banging um, theme tune. Be a very different film. A very Let's not let him have that film. No, don't. I, I, don't. I never want to see a remake of Close Encounters. I don't think it's one of those films that should be ever remade. I don't think you can. But you, you know why? It's because it is. That film isn't just written, directed, and, and starred by and theme tuned, sung by, etc. Steven yeah. Spielberg. It's actually part of his heart. It yes. is. It is the film he's always wanted to make. Yes. And, and that's why nothing about it is trite. Nothing about it is not impactful. Um, <laughs> there's a scene in it, and, and it's kind of halfway through, and it's when, and this is going back to the coming out thing, it's, right. it's when Roy um, is sat at the dinner table and there's been all sorts of randomness happening in Roy's life. The, has. the, the kids have got really upset with him. Yep. The, his wife's got really upset with him. You know, yep. he's, he's not coping well with the fact that he saw um, two UFOs. Yep. And um, that went straight into his heart. Yeah. Then he starts to have this obsession with this shape. Yeah. Now, he hasn't got the shape right. You can see that he's searching yeah. somehow for getting this search. And then 
he sat at the dinner table and he said, you know, that's fine. It's all OK. Out comes the mashed potato. I love mashed potato. Oh, my God. Yeah. He put, puts the mashed potato. Looks like really good mashed potato as well, doesn't it? Oh, it's it nice. It holds its form. Yeah. yeah. Puts it on the plate and, oh, there's that shape again. Yeah. So instantly at that point, he's like, in his own world, refining that shape. Yeah. Oblivious to the fact that the, the family are watching him and actually watch the family because yeah. um, his eldest boy, I don't know what on earth they did to get this child to act as well as this yeah. and what they did to get this child to do this with his face. But they they do this split screen thing that was dual, dual focus. That's it. It's brilliant. I love it because it's so yeah. tacky and you can see, you can see how bad it is. Yeah. But it, they do this dual focus thing where he's in focus and then the kids are behind him and the look on the kid's face and that, is brilliant acting that whole scene there oh, it is is so powerful i mean christ this is a this is a science fiction film but that is the breaking point of a family that is a yeah. family where the father has gone beyond the pale for the, yeah. for the kids the kid is looking at his father who's his hero yeah absolutely and, and i don't know how old kids are i can't tell from looking at them would we say eight nine ten the, the, the eldest kids probably uh, 12 or 13 i would have thought you're much I would have thought. Aging kids, yeah. So 12 or 13. So this, this kid's looking at his father and everything in that kid is breaking. And that's such a powerful, um, powerful scene. Yeah, oh, it is. I was saying that was on Friday night. That was probably the scene that where I felt myself welling up a little bit because you could yeah. you can see they're all welling up. And it is. It's that shot over. It starts over Rich Drifts' shoulder. Yeah. And the side of his head is perfectly in focus. And the kid's face is in focus over the top. And you can see the tear just start in his son's yeah. eye. It starts rolling down. Then they cut to the the side shot. So you can see Dreyfus' side shot and his son. I can't remember his son's name. don't even know if his son's actually have their names mentioned, the children. I'm going to say Michael. Is it Michael? can't actually remember I am again will tell us, but I'm going to say Michael. Yeah. But they're both, there's a tear coming down both of yeah. their cheeks at the same time. And it's like, Right. Okay. Yeah. Dad's dad's lost it completely at that point, and yeah. the kids know dad's lost it, and it's all about that moment. Um, but he realizes as well what he's doing. Yeah. And I think that makes him more powerful. That he's he's done this wonderful shape, and he then kind of goes, "Oh no, that like I'm I'm really upsetting my family, my kids, but I can't stop." And there's a definite I can't stop to what he's doing that he has to continue yeah. to make the shape because he's he is fixated on it completely, isn't he? At that point. So this is the coming out thing, right? He knows there's something in there. He knows his truth, right? And that truth has to come out, and that's why it was powerful for me because that was the reson- That's what resonated with me, right? Was there was something inside of me that didn't fit with what was happening with the outside of me? Yeah. And my truth was hidden for another, well, God, I don't know, 10, 12 years. But yeah. that Roy's going through this, there's something that's got to come out. And that, that was, that's the parallel for me, I think. Right. I, I think the other, the other thing as well is, and Spielberg does this really well, and he did it in a lot, all of his films. Yeah. Um, the, the situation where people are feels real. So the set designers, the set dressers have done an amazing job because that house is how a house is. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you look at a film, and oh Christ, even in the 80s and 90s, look at films, they're staged houses. Yeah. 
you know that they're, they're the houses that you aspire to live in it's a very yeah. american thing we portray the best of ourselves so that yeah. you want to have this whereas this film is set in a a house that is upside down with toys yeah. it's lived in isn't it it's a real house yeah you, you could imagine that they actually when they were filming it they went Do you know what? just live in that house yeah, and yeah. we'll film around you exactly it looks like they, they, they've been there for ages. And there is, as you say, there's toys all over the place and there's yeah, yeah. dishes in the sink and whatever else, which when he then, I know it's the next day then, and he's yeah. decided he's going to build his mount in the living room. But when he throws <laughs> the bricks through the, the window, they land on plates that are in the sink. They do, they do. It's real. <laughs> it is. This is happening, guys. It's stuff. Yeah. There's no CGI in this. No, there's not, which is something... My son said, because he watched it as well, and when he was going, the effects aren't very good, Dad. You know, in that way, <laughs> a 12-year-old child will. But yeah. Actually, if you look at the effects, they're absolutely unbelievable. The, yeah. If, if you go to the, the scene where, and I'm jumping around the film here, and maybe we should try and keep it in some sort of perspective, but that scene where he's chasing the invaders yeah. down the road, and the police are chasing as well, and yeah. he's gone alongside with them, his first encounter. When they go off the road, it's so realistic that the, the police car does follow them. Yeah. And actually, I couldn't work out that they'd gone off the road. It, it looked like they'd stayed on a road. Why yeah. should they be flying at that point? Which is why the police car obviously follows them, because he thinks they're on the road as well. Yeah. But it, it looks right. There's never a point yeah. where you think, is that being put on later? Or is, is that really there? Not sure. It's a, it's a clever scene, I think. And I think the, the effects, especially for the time, are incredibly clever. And you can go back a, a, a few minutes earlier in the film. Um, and let me paint the picture of how this went down in the cinema, because Spielberg set this up brilliantly. Yeah. So Roy's in the car, in yep. the van. He's, he's a linesman. So, yes. So, oh, God, I have to need, just take one step aside again. Everything about this film, to me, as a child growing up in Doncaster, was alien. Every single thing. Yeah. I didn't know what job he had, because that's not a job that happens in the UK. So I couldn't relate to that. No, not the at all. House, the house he lives in, nothing like that in the UK. Even nope. though it, you know it's real inside, nothing yep. like that in the UK. Nope. It was an American film for a boy in South Yorkshire who didn't really get to understand what most of what was happening in America. You yeah, know, I can see that, yeah. Different worlds. So... Even from day one, this was a film about aliens, and the aliens were Americans. Yeah. You know, it was, everything was odd. But anyway, so come back into this. This, So Roy's going out to do something with power lines. Um, he's in his car, and it's dark, and he's lost, and he's looking at his map. Car comes up behind him. He's in the middle of the road. Get out of the way. Beep, 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 beep. Guy, a guy overtakes him. Yeah. That's great. The next scene, another set of lights appears yeah. behind him, and he's reading the map, and you think, Oh, he's blocking the road again. Yeah. And then a combination of the music, just focusing on the lights, and you see the lights move up. Now, when those lights started to move up in the cinema, in 1978, March, April, whenever it was, in Doncaster, ABC <laughs> Cinema, everyone went, whoa! <laughs> because we weren't expecting it. No. We no, weren't expecting that. And no. it was actually scary. Yeah, I, yeah, I can imagine. Because it was obviously the, the first time they did it was that false. It was 
relaying it as being something that's grounded. There was a car. Yeah. You can see what a car looks like. These are what headlights yeah, yeah. look like. Come up behind. The car comes around the side. That's yeah. what happens. Yeah. So the next time you are just expecting exactly the same thing. And then yeah. they go up, as yeah. you say, in that way. It's like, yeah, yeah. where have they gone? But yeah, I think that that was put in. So did you, the first time you saw this film, you saw this at the cinema. Oh, where else would you think I would be watching it? On my mum and dad's 21-inch TV. <laughs> didn't, have, didn't have VHS back then. I didn't know didn't if you'd seen it later, like I did. I saw oh, this God, no. the first time when it was on television. No, oh God, we, we used to go to the cinema all the time. Seeing with other people and then being as shocked at that scene as yeah, you yeah. were yourself. Yeah, I mean, it was everyone had the same raft of emotions in the yeah. cinema throughout the whole film. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. Um, but I think the other thing to, to focus on here is the soundtrack. Oh, yeah. I mean, everything oh, about that soundtrack. Right, yeah. Absolutely, just completely matches everything. Yes. The soundtrack score, the sound, the, the sounds on the film. So when when this light goes up behind the van, you see it going up, yeah, and then yeah. it comes over the van, and then you have all the noise cacophony, and then the silence as the light comes down and it goes silent. Yeah, and yeah. everything is like everything's physical and tangible in that scene. You feel like you can feel the light. You can feel the um, the fear. You can sense um, this alienness that's happening to Roy as he's sat in his cab, and then it starts to vibrate, and the noise starts to come in. Yeah, and you know, it's almost that you're in that. It's so claustrophobic. You're in there with him. You know, there's the sounds of the mailboxes. I mean, I had never seen what a mailbox was. No. What were they? No. Vibrating madly, I thought they yeah. were birdhouses. Why would they have a flag on them and a door? <laughs> um, you know, um, and they were vibrating, and you know, things started going up in rising up, almost like you know, gravity was kind of like suspended, and yeah. we, were, we were in free fall as things started moving around. The thing. And and Roy's just in there thinking, what on earth is happening? What's yeah. happening? Because he hasn't recognised this thing's gone up behind him. He doesn't light, and and then off it goes. And everything comes back down and silence descends. And then these, the crickets outside, you hear the crickets. And he's yeah. just sat there shocked, has no idea what's happening. And the, the, the um, hilarious thing is the, the um, torch that he's holding just comes on. Yes. Shines in his face. It scares life out of him. Scares the hell out of him <laughs> and everyone in the cinema. Yes. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I must admit, I wish I had seen that cinema when it was first out, but... I guess it that little bit of time between us age-wise meant that I, I didn't see it until it came out on television. The, um, we, we went more than once to see it. So, yeah. you know, we went several times. Um, yeah. I, I, I suggested something was scary earlier. I think there is a really truly scary part of the film. Mm. Um, and that is where Barry gets abducted. Yes. Barry! Now, I did so, want to talk about that bit. Okay. Um, as I said, I watched this with my daughter. Yeah. And that is the only part where she was truly scared. And she yeah. did say towards the end, well, were they different aliens? Because these ones are nice. Yeah. So when the ship comes down at the end and they let the people back, she couldn't understand why Barry was on that ship. Because Barry obviously yeah. comes back at the end. Yeah. And um, because it seemed like that was, they were nasty. And I guess there's, as part of that scene, uh, must come back to Spielberg's work on Jaws, because obviously Jaws was a film previous to this. Yeah. And 
historically it's all down how many problems he had with making jaws with the robot shark doesn't work in the water or whatever else but you yeah. can see in that scene that he's played on all the the ways he got round the shark not working in making that scene work without giving you anything there's there's no sign of the alien there's steam and there's bits things fly about and a hoover attacks him at one's points but other than that there's nothing other than lights to scare you in that scene and what is more scary than your own imagination exactly and i think that's what i know from reading stuff about how he worked with jaws that's what he said he had to do with jaws was to go the shark doesn't work it's rubbish so i've got to make it so your imagination sees this shark attacking that you're either you are the shark yeah or it's all about that and he did exactly the same with this in fact if the jaws music had come on at some point in that (laughs) When the Hoover started going across, I wouldn't have gone, no, that, that, that's not bad. That's all right. I, I accept that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the bit that really got me was the build-up of anticipation all the way through was brilliant. Yeah. Um, the colour of that whole five-minute scene is yeah. brilliant. The oranges. The oranges, yeah, the glows. Um, yeah. And it's it's the lights that gets you. It's the vibrations of the soundtrack yeah. that get you. Yeah, and, and random things like seeing a, a floor vent. I had no idea what a floor vent would be for, but um, <laughs> a floor vent with the screws unscrewing. Yeah, and and then you you kind of realise that she thinks, oh my god, it's going to come down the chimney. Yes, and so she puts her head up. She's trying to find this flap to close the chimney, and you know the fear in her face as she's doing this. Yeah, well, um, you are at that point coming down the chimney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. hand as well. Closer and closer to the hand. You're the alien. Yeah, or Santa. Or Santa. I mean, an alien or Santa. (laughs) One or the other. I think we'll go with alien. I hadn't bought Santa. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, she manages to stop Santa getting into whatever room this was. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And and of course, then she turns around and there's a hole in the door. Who knew what a dog flap was when you were a kid? But there you go. We didn't have them. Um, and the child has gone out through the door, and yes. she's managed to grab the child by the ankles. Yes. So poor Barry is being pulled by an alien force <laughs> and his mum. Yes. And you can so, see he's obviously someone is at the other side holding his hands up because he is yes. floating between that, in that dog flap, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I suppose the bizarre thing is now... We have to say it's our imagination which tells us what the aliens look like because yeah. we haven't yeah. seen them at this point. No, no, not at all. Um, and I know when we do see them, they're the greys. And, yes. and actually the greys existed in folklore before this film. Well, I they think did, this yes. The yeah. first film that actually put a face to the greys in celluloid. I don't yeah. think anything else portrayed them. I Obviously, I don't books. think so. I think comic books may have touched on it. Yeah, those early sci-fi comic books in the states, um, yeah. but I don't think it'd been shown in on film in that way. No. Yeah. So in my mind, there were no aliens coming down the chimney. There was no aliens pulling the child. It was a force that was pulling it. Yeah. I, yeah. So it was a force trying to get in. It was a force trying to get get the child. So I don't think though, in my mind, there was an alien grabbing his hands and pulling. Me. He was almost being sucked out in a big Hoover. Yeah. By whatever this light was. By whatever this light was. Outside. And I suppose with the old Star Wars stuff in mind, from the fact that that was probably the, the science fiction film you'd seen before this, yeah. tractor beam on the Death Star pulling spaceships in. 
there you go. That same idea, something's just pulling it towards. Totally. Yeah, I must admit, I had the same thing. I didn't think there was something, someone there grabbing his yeah. hands. I, I felt something was pulling him in rather than anything else. Because you say, we haven't seen the aliens at that point. We've just seen lights. No, exactly. We exactly. don't even know if the aliens aren't just these lights, that these spaceships we've seen, they might be the aliens. Because there's loads of them. And I think this is why, as a film, it works, because you're not put off by the by something other than your own thoughts. You're not put off by a crappily made alien. You're not put off yeah. by a, a something that doesn't scare you because it's been so badly made kind of thing right until the end. So yeah. you've got all of the film to build up your suspension of um, what's real. You've got, your, you've got your imagination working for you. So the whole film is filled with your monsters. Yeah, yeah. It's, a film to scare you with monsters that scare you. Yeah. And I think going back to your point earlier, if Michael Bay made this, oh. we would have seen those aliens. They would have been running through the house by now. They would, <laughs> and we would wouldn't have... know what they look like because they'd be moving too quick. Possibly. There is that possibility. <laughs> fighting, there, but... fighting each other too quickly. <laughs> they it, would have been you know, in there. You would have seen them, definitely. I, I don't have a problem with CGI. I think CGI no. has a good place, but I think when every single thing you're looking at just doesn't exist, there's no there's no mechanics yeah. driving it all. It's just all in a computer. Um, I yeah. think it takes away this heart and makes it into a head because yeah. you know things things aren't real. There's nothing tangible there. Yeah. I think everything about this film is tangible. You know, the toaster and the microwave pinging and jumping up and down and yeah. things in sync when when Barry's being abducted. They all really happened. Yes. That actually was a thing that happened, so it's relatable. Thinking about all the actors in the film, I mean, it's really hard to think about anyone in that film not being at the top of their game. And bizarrely, right at the beginning, you've got the, um, the interpreter. He's one of the first people you see in the desert. He is, yeah. Yep. And then the words come on the screen. There's no noise. No, there's no there's music. Not. No. And then... You start to hear the desert. Yeah. And then you're in. Yeah. And this build-up of of the sound of the desert and the sound of the, the soundtrack coming in, and then all of a sudden you just... Yeah. Bang! And you're yeah. in. You're in the there, film. On you. Yeah, it's brilliant. And, and it's from that point onwards, you're gripped. It's yeah. brought you in on a slow, slow start and then suddenly dumped you in the middle of a desert. Yeah. You don't know what's happening. And you can't really hear what people are saying either. No. All the noise of the desert's over the top yeah. of them the whole time, isn't it? Because that's what would it would be like. That's yeah. what it would be like. Yeah. You would struggle to hear. Yeah. I mean, and so there's that realness. Yeah. Going back to that start bit, because I must admit, I forgot that scene completely. So wow. when I started off on Friday night, I was like, what's going on? I'm sure it starts differently this. But as the lights appeared, Max sitting next to me went, is that a spaceship then? No, because it's just come up there in the Mexico desert. And then obviously Land Rover appears. Like, no, it's a Land Rover. It's all right. It's not a spaceship. But I'd completely forgotten that scene even occurred because that's there are three stories here, aren't there, in this film? There's basically the story of Lacombe yep. and his interpreter, as you say, yep. the map reader, the first person we actually see. Um, there's Roy's story, and then yep. there's Barry's story. And that's kind of those three stories merge at one at that final point and i think two of them merge earlier yeah but at the very end they merge and lacombe obviously sees something in in roy yeah to put him forward at the end but let's talk about those three stories then so let's start with that starting scene yeah as a sort of what 
11 year old boy <laughs> what did you think was going on when you're suddenly in the mexico desert and looking at all these planes that they then go oh they're from 1945 what goes through your head so i've been reading science fiction for a long time right so nothing about the film actually shocked me as right. in what a concept so see i'd already been reading about the bermuda triangle yeah so yeah. how planes disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. So yes. when, when we saw the planes, I was excited because it was like, oh, this is a tangible thing yeah. about all the stuff I've read all my life. You know, here yeah. are planes from the past that have been returned. Brilliant. Yes. yes. So I, I got it straight away. So it linked from um, the point of view to things that you'd read at the time. And I guess probably, because yeah. I'd have been reading it as well, 14 times without at that time. Yeah. And everyone was reading 14 times. And it talked about all the paranormal stuff that was going on. So... I guess there's a lot of that in there. That, and I probably I would have thought Spielberg was playing on that to a certain extent with that scene. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he brought out every every science fiction trope and everything that's yeah. happening around that time. Well, he and created a lot of science fiction thing, tropes, I think. Yeah. But, I mean, he was into science fiction, so yeah. he's living all the things he'd read. Yeah. He's not yeah. telling a story of something happened because all of this hasn't happened. It's all yeah. just geeks making stuff up. Yeah, so he's absolutely. Really saying, source material that you and I read. Um, so, you know, he, he's just quoting back where he's seen. So I'm going to be controversial here and say that the um, Truffaut character didn't land with me at all through the film. Didn't warm to him. I, I didn't like his acting. Um, I thought, you know, here's a... I, I didn't know who he was as a kid and probably didn't know who he was until about, I don't know, yesterday when I looked it up on IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> You know, here's this guy who's a massive director, French yeah. speaker, naturalized yeah. French speaker, and has only appeared in his own films. Yeah. This is yeah. the first film he's appeared in where he's in an English-speaking role. Right. And I think he's rubbish in it. I, I think I think I don't I don't warm to his character. No. Now, apparently, Gerard Depardieu was due to um, be in that character as well. Wow. Asked. That would have been a very different film, wouldn't it? It really would have done. Um, you know, comic actor. Yeah, um, plays plays. So that would have been interesting to see, but yeah, I think Truffaut in this doesn't work for me. I think that the interpreter um, is a stronger role because yes. I think he carries away the um, the shock and awe of every scene much better than Truffaut, who kind of looks like he's just standing there and you know. Meh. But is that not actually part of the character that he's supposed to be slightly aloof and slightly oh, out of his own? I suppose. He's out of his own comfort zone. He's working with people that he can't even communicate with. They're yeah. not even his team. He's suddenly a Frenchman stuck with this. I guess it's the American military. They don't actually say who yeah. it is he's working with at any point. No. Is he not supposed to be? Not someone you can warm to. That's a good thing. Maybe, maybe there are already too many good characters. Introducing another strong character might be not needed. No. You're right. No, I, 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 and. I must admit, I felt that his character was just kind of leading everybody else to the right place. Okay, so, so it's he was... like he's there and he's got these ideas, but he needs someone else to tell everybody else what it is because he can't speak for himself effectively. So he's a facilitator. Yeah, yeah. So he's okay. just facilitating the whole story and bringing everyone at the right places. Yeah. And I think the interpreter guy, yeah, you're right, he's he's brilliant. And yeah, he is. I, it jumps ahead a long way, but when he comes up with a, I used to be a map reader, <laughs> and he's <laughs> he's noticed that this is longitude and latitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There. But 
and I jump in a bit, but I think that selection there dates the film more than anything else. It's like I've got longitude and latitude, and the only thing that from this military base they're in is an ancient globe in the yes. boss's office that they have to smash <laughs> off its thing and roll down. And like, oh, this is just because now, of course, we're just going Google Maps and we're done. Exactly. And in the Michael Bay version, that's what yeah. happens. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, it's your mobile phone now, is there? Imagine if the globe that they'd actually gone in and, and found was a drinks globe. <clears throat> you know, they were very big in the seventies. <laughs> They'd just broken in, found a drinks globe, not realised it was a drink globe, and was rolling it in, and there's a, a bottle of gin in there, there's a bottle of whiskey in there. and Dripping out the it, bottom as it rolls along. Yeah. <laughs> I still want one of those. Ooh, yeah. You know, 53, and maybe I owe it to myself. Yeah, you should buy one. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so so that was good. So we're talking about the Truffaut storyline. Yes. Okay. Sorry. So I think that's brilliant. Um I love when he goes to India and they do the recording of the yes. tribes. Yes. And that's kind of the origin of the... Yeah, because that's, that's where it gets from originally, isn't yeah. it? That, yeah. that sound. Because then, do they then skip from that to the... He's meeting then with... I guess it's the UN that he has that meeting with. He's meeting somebody... Yes. ...without PowerPoint presentation. Yes. <laughs> with a tape recorder. And did he have to, did he have an OHP? Might have had an OHP. I'm not entirely sure. No, he's got he's got a guy at the back of the room who's got the tape recorder. Okay, and he is playing the noise of the chanting, and they seem to have somehow superimposed the tone over yeah. the chanting because he plays the uh, and it goes and you hear the tone. What I what I I think watching it again recently was the fact that where did the hands come in? Where did the hand signal oh, come in? Now, Ah, you see, now I did a little bit of research on this. The, it's called solfege, and it is the sign language that is used in music to denote pitch and sound. Uh-huh. So if you look up solfege, you will find that there's a whole sequence of sign language for making every note that is possible to make. That's brilliant. It's hand singing, effectively. It's, it's music for the singing deaf. Singing for deaf people. Yeah, music for yeah. the deaf. You can actually sing with your hands. Um, Fantastic. So the five tones, the hand signals he uses are literally just that same thing. It's all fish. So, yeah, so he then he does the um, whole telling every the world about it yeah. and then all of a sudden becomes part of this whole military thing with the Piggly Wiggly band, etc. Yes. Yeah. Um, and obviously, um, Roy drives across the countryside um, to get to Devil's Tower yeah. and, and goes across the, all of the dead cattle, etc. I've jumped way around here, but. You have. Um, this is kind of linking us to the fact that he then meets all the military. Yes, because so. that's this is basically this is Lacombe's story. So I guess yes. that's all we see of him. There's a huge yes. chunk in that middle where we're back we're in Roy's story, character. and it's all Roy. Yeah. yeah. Um, his whole building of his tower and everything is, which is unbelievable scene, which we will come back to. But yeah, to carry on with the Truffaut piece, yeah. um, we then see him in a very kind of militaristic setting. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next time after that, we see him, he's become part of the true setting of who he is when he's in the science setting, when yes. they've, they've created the, the facility, yeah. the aliens are coming. And that's where I think him as a character, you get more out of him in those scenes yeah. because you get to see his sense of wonder. Yeah. And I think up to this point, I think taking your comments on board, he's been a shadow character. Yeah, very much. Out of, out of his own comfort zone yeah 
not making much of it, kind of being carried away, bobbing along on, on a, a wave of what's happening around yeah. him. And just going along with it because well, he needs to be somewhere. Yeah. yeah, he needs to get to this last scene. Yeah. And he's the expert and he's navigating all the nonsense and he gets to the final scene and this is where he shines as a character. Yeah. Um, that sense of awe, that fact that he's realised that people are trying to get to the Devil's Tower. They're all being sent there. The, the tone is yeah. telling people where to go. Yeah. Um, and there are a handful of people who have been compelled yes. to get to this tower. Yeah. He recognises that. And that's why he recognises that Roy has, is the chosen one. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I, I think that's... Uh, that's the element where Lacombe's story actually mirrors Roy's because they're yeah. both determined to meet these aliens, to be at that point where the aliens are yeah. going to be there. Lacombe's getting there through these military channels and official channels, if you like, whereas Roy's very much like, I, I just need to be there. And he's yeah. finding whatever way he can and disobeying all the rules to get there. There's, there's a good thing that he says, Lacombe says, they were invited. Yes. Lacan has set all this up. He's interrupted all the signals. He's researched it. Yeah. He's enabled this. Yeah. But Lacan wasn't invited. No. No. Roy was. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is the big difference between their stories. And it brings back that yeah. thing that Lacan is, is a facilitator. Yeah. He's doing everything he can for Roy to be there that point in time to meet up with the aliens and do whatever it is they need to do. Because there's the whole thing with the, all the guys in the red suits who, for some reason, and I don't know how they got to the point of, we need to have however many people that are going to go onto this spaceship, they're going to put in red suits, and they're going to be launched out and the aliens are going to pick one. But they'd, they'd, yeah. they'd made that decision at some point because these guys appeared in red suits for no good reason. And it was never explained what they were until they sort of march them out at the end with Roy at the back with the only one who's there without sunglasses and a bag. But the aliens choose from them, don't they? There's a really odd thing that he introduces into this. When all of the red-dressed men and women are, are being prepared, a priest blesses them. Yeah. And there's a religious element. Yes. It's like, even as a kid, that jarred. Yeah, um, and I, I don't know why it's in there, but it's almost like they're giving them the last rites. It, it was a bit like that, yes. Yeah, it's not the words the last um, rites, but they're definitely. Yeah, we're never going to see you again. Sort of is almost in yeah. there. Off you go. Yeah. Yes. Sorry to interrupt. I no, just but... thought that was interesting to point out the religious thing that was kind of tossed in there. Well, even the fact that they have them all dressed the same, and it's almost like a I don't know a, a religious gown that they're wearing as they're yeah. passed out to. Whatever it is, it, 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 there is a big religion thing in there, I think. It, I mean, if you think about this film as a, a religious allegory or whatever, I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could. Oh, yeah, you could. Sure. But, but, but I think for me, and it, this goes back to my relationship with religion, is that I actually believe that something has happened in the past that's caused these stories to come into existence. Yes. I kind of believe it's people coming from outer space. So I think this is almost... Um, Spielberg's religious story. This is basically saying this is where we all came from. There's more out there than than what we know. Yeah. There's nothing to say that you know, two thousand years ago, 
30,000 years ago, yeah. we arrived from the stars, yeah. you know. So maybe that little bit of, of man's religion is a, is a nod to that. In this, you know, here's some nonsense, and actually, here's the truth. Yeah. You know, there's more out there than, than us. Our small beliefs are, are nonsense. Yeah. Look, look at what's now changed yeah. in, our, in our lives. You know, we, we are now aware that we are not unique. Yeah. And there's plenty of other storytellers that have followed on that same... Oh, Roots. crikey, yeah. You know, at most... I mean, if you look at the retelling of Battlestar Galactica... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is just a stunning tour de force of, of serial um, storytelling. Yeah. Um, I mean, that ended a little bit weakly, but I still loved it. Yeah. You know, that, that became a, an origin story for us. Yeah. So you talked about three stories then. Yeah. About, uh, so that's um, Lacombe. So... He's obviously investigating... I guess he's... I don't know what his science scientist thing was whether he was investigating Bermuda Triangle or alien abduction or what he's investigating but he's found this these airplanes at the start um and then he finds the, the ship in the desert the ship in the desert what an amazing scene yeah yeah anyway we find that no one could have guessed that coming no. along that was brilliant yeah um he finds that and he's got the the indians singing away that have yep. got the five tones, which he then yep. interprets to manage to send off into space, which yep. gets them the latitude and longitude, which leads them to the Devil's Tower. Great. So that's Lacombe. Meanwhile, yep. we have Roy, and we've obviously touched on Roy's story a lot because yep. it's the main part of it. As we said earlier on, he's a, he's a linesman. He's working on power lines. Yep. Um, and he keeps, he after his first encounter with these spaceships which is the night of the power outage. Um, he then starts seeing the ship. And we've yeah. talked about it. he made the, the mash. But that leads him to the next day where he makes the most incredible model of Devil's. Isn't that great to make that in one day? <laughs> See, now this was, this was what I was going to say, because was it one day? Because time in this, I don't know how long there is between all these different things. No, and I don't think it matters because I no. think it's just a, 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 a. It doesn't matter. They there could be days, weeks, yeah. months. Yeah, um, it's a man that's compelled to do Absolutely. something. He's, comp- he's, he's compelled to build this yeah. thing because again, it's inside him. He yeah. has to get it out. He has to find a way yeah. of bringing it to life. But he throws that away um, at one point. He's having the meeting with Lacombe in the caravan after Mitterrand pick him up, and he asks him, oh, "Are you an artist?" No. And they show him the picture, and he just goes, yeah, got one of them in my front room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very much like, <laughs> yeah, I spent hours building some of that. I really don't care anymore. It's in my front room. Yeah. Um, but it's a beautifully detailed model. Um, it's, it's amazing. Which he comes back to the fact that he's a model maker when they're climbing up the mountain. Yeah. And he talks about, you know, you should have been a model maker, that you'd know what's around the corner. Because everyone else says, oh, you've drawn a 2D version of it, and he's created this yeah. 3D version. Yeah, and that's why he's going to try and get to the other side of mountain, and everybody else is trying to be at the front. Just to get to the the bit that they saw on the TV yeah. that that they then made into their artwork. Yeah, yeah. which that TV scene's uh, brilliant. Um, oh. That was an edge of the seat bit for me because he's yeah. there on the phone talking to his yeah. wife, having this <laughs> argument, 
and they keep panning past it and you see it on the TV and he's never looking at the TV. Just look at the TV! Look at the TV! (laughs) And eventually he does look at the TV and that then stops him and he suddenly knows where he needs to go. But it's so... Again, and this goes back to the pacing thing and how actually, although it's really slow paced, it's absolutely essential to be at that speed because that scene, if he'd seen it straight away, you're done. Yeah. Oh, yeah, gun devil's tower off a go. Instead, you have this whole just look at the TA moment. Yeah. And it's brilliantly done. And I guess every every one of the other people he then meets up with on the helicopter had that same moment of everyone had the same experience. Yeah. Yeah. You t- so you're then telling so many stories through one person. Agreed. Yeah. Because I guess. Barry's mum had the same moment as well, and she then couldn't because he then meets her as the military are trying to shove her back on a train to get her yeah. out of the area. He then meets yeah. up with her again. And isn't it odd because you know he's left his wife. Yeah. Um, you know, we we don't know how long, as you say, chronologically that's been. No. But he's now teamed up with a woman. And that's an unusual thing in storytelling in American films because when a man and a woman team up as a team, yeah. there is a sexual element to that relationship. Yes. There is a um, romantic element to this relationship. Yes. But that doesn't exist in this film. He does kiss her. He does, as he goes, think... as she says, no, this is my place here because Barry's not here yes. and he's going. They do have a, a, a very romantic kiss. It's not a friendly peck on the cheek. It's a kind of, this is the last time I'm going to see you, but there's something there. Do you know, in my mind, I don't think that I see them as a couple. I think I see them as two people with a, a really clear driver right. bringing them to a point in time. And I, I don't see the relationship then. You're right, there is that kiss. Yeah. But I wonder if that kiss is, is not a kiss for her, but is it a kiss goodbye to the world? Is it a kiss goodbye to... Could be. Everything he knows. Could be. Because we're given nothing to suggest that there is any romance between No, them. no, no. Given the religious element then comes in later, though, it yeah. could be a problematic kiss in that, hold on, you've got a wife. What are you doing now suddenly yeah. kissing some other woman? But maybe that's a different story. I don't know. It is. And, you know, obviously in, in a different time, just abandoning your family. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because you've gone a bit bonkers. Yeah. Um, and and you're still the hero at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, exit wife and family who are now not living in, in the house yeah. that they own, yeah. and we don't know where they are. No. But that whole, uh, I must admit, the whole family, it's almost only there for the mashed potato scene. Yeah. It, you know, the, the whole, yeah. the, and the only time they actually come into anything like their own is during that madness section. And you kind of wonder, if he hadn't had a family, would it have made any difference to the film other than the fact that that emotional bit there would have just been him sitting on his own building a mashed potato mountain and then there's no impact of it. Roy's built his Devil's Tower. Yeah. I mean, that, that fabulous scene where he's trying to pull it all to pieces and he still hasn't got the shape right. Yes. But he gets the shape and he's pulling it to pieces and the top comes off and there it is! That's it! Got a flat That's the shape! It. Yeah. <laughs> that is... Who- so this is the coming out point. This is, ah. I now know who I am. Right. Got you. Up until this point, he didn't know who he was. He, there was something inside him waiting to get out. And at that point, it's there. 
And that's the it's bit been revealed to him. Is that the bit for you that really, really resonates? Is that why yeah, this became it's your that whole I hadn't really thought of it as a coming out film until I actually dissected what it was I liked mm. about this film. And I just thought, oh my God, it's a parallel of everything I felt as a kid right. and everything that makes me who I am as an adult. He found himself in that film. Right. Obviously, he wouldn't have found himself outside the film because he didn't exist outside the film. <laughs> in that film, his character found himself. And that was the point at which his life then made perfect sense. Right. And, and I think that's really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Did you know anything about the Heineck scale at the point of watching this film? Did the third kind mean anything to you at all? Or was it yes. literally just, these are numbers? No. Third kind meant that you were going to meet them. You going to meet them, right? Okay, so you, you did. So you knew that because you're going to see the film. No, nope. previous two knew it already. Knew yeah. already. So yeah, so this kind of stuff was in the, in the press anyway. Yeah. So you know, seventies was. was a time when people talked about alien abduction. Yeah, yeah, it was. Was a time. Um, you know, this was a film grounded in in its time. Yeah. You know that it was people were talking about it, but in a very positive sense because I think. All the other alien films up to that point, and possibly around that point as well, if you sort of discount things like Star Wars and Star Trek, they were all alien invasion films. Mm -hmm. And the world was under attack from these aliens, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, go, go back to the 50s, War of the Worlds, Invasion of Body Snatchers, Day of the Earth Stood Still, all those films are all alien invasion. And the aliens are coming, and they're going to destroy you, and that's it. Whereas this was very much a positive... The aliens are coming, but they want mm -hmm. to learn from us or learn about us. And even the return of the the pilots from 1945, when we see them return from the spaceship, it's all very, you're back now, it's okay. We're going to look after you. Yeah. And obviously they've been looked after by the aliens because they're all, they look in very good health, considering... Well, we don't know if they have been looked after, do we? This is the whole thing. We, no, we, we don't. We project that they're benevolent. Yeah. We, we, but they might not be. Well, no, we hope they are, because they do all look healthy. And, and poor little Barry comes out, and he's he's really sad when they're going, isn't he? Bye, goodbye. Yeah, and there's a little tear goodbye. down his eye, and he's like, yeah. he, it's, it appeared to me he'd had fun with these aliens. Imagine if they had control of time, and they'd managed to slow down time well they obviously had control of time because of the space uh, of the pilots yes, so imagine yeah. that those pilots had been in a suspended time animation whatever yeah and during that time they'd experimented on them yeah we don't know which i guess is all the the fears that were going around america at that time with alien abduction and all the pictures yeah. and all the ufo pictures that there were at that time all being played out isn't it in one place yeah 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 but even given that, Roy still wants to go with them. Because he can't not. It's his truth. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's what he's here for. Yeah. Because he was invited. Yeah. So in inviting him, have they, have they brainwashed him? These tones and the whole lights, and have they brainwashed him to go, you are our one we're going to take? And they've somehow implanted that into his head that they must, he must go with them to replace all the others that they're going to return. I, it's a good question. I, I suppose I think about it as a almost like 
he's like a sleeper agent that's been turned on you know he he's possibly always had this in him um it's his destiny and it's something's happened to turn it on so he's seen the the spaceship Mm -hmm. um chase them etc so i think it's almost as if he has been selected yep he's been activated so you know why would the spaceship that comes on the road and goes up behind him be behind Roy. Yeah, why him? Yeah. yeah. Why him? So I think that, you know, it's always been there. I don't know, maybe at some point in the past, Roy has been abducted himself and experimented on. And they've thought, you know, he, he's, he's, we'd like a bit more of him, please. <laughs> um, he were all right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm making this up now, but yeah. I, I kind of always think it's always been in him. It's been um, turned on and it, there's there's nothing that he can do. Which he just has to do this. Brings it back to your whole coming out. Yeah. yeah. He has to be the true king. Yeah. It's about living your destiny. Yeah. Yeah. And his destiny is to represent the human race. Yeah. Right. So let's talk about those aliens at the end, because I think that links, I think, really well to one of Spielberg's next films. E.T. Yeah. Because, obviously, E.T., is a spiritual sequel to Close Encounters. Yeah, I mean, the aliens are almost a, yeah. a prototype for well, E.T. It's based on his his sequel that he wrote for Close Encounters, which was Night Skies, Yeah, which was what the the production team wanted, what the, the studio wanted, and he never wanted to make a sequel. No. Um, and I believe, from what something I read, it was Harrison Ford, having read Night Skies, said keep those bits and make it a nice story. Yeah. Which is where AT comes from. Um, but if you look at that final alien, the one with the really bad special effects at the end. Yeah, yeah. Not the children running around in suits, because they're great. The one that you finally see that is, ah, is it a clay model that they're badly moving around in yeah. some smoke? But that is definitely a proto yeah, it's proto ET, isn't it? It's got that yeah. head with a bit built onto the front of it. Yeah, and the slightly elongated neck, and it's just—it's yeah. definitely there, isn't it? And this was the one bit of the film that upset me more than any, and and it's because uh, the friends I've been with, we were watching the end. Yeah, and you know, even back in 1978, we knew it was bad. We knew that they were bad. <laughs> they they weren't great effects. We knew this. No. We knew that they were a bit rubbish, the aliens. But, yeah. you know, because it had resonated so strongly with me all the way through, I knew it was bad, but I didn't... I just knew I was watching someone's interpretation limited by whatever we could do at the time. I knew yeah. that. It didn't upset me. No. But as soon as the children appeared, yeah. Stuart Anderson just went, ah, mushy pea heads. And so <laughs> the end of the film now... Is always Stuart Anderson when they appear going, ah, mushy periods. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, those, the kids that come out, they are so obviously just kids in suits. Of course they are. And, course but they, they are. don't, there's, there's basically, you see three different aliens in that final scene. Yeah. Because there's the first one that you see has the amazingly long legs and long arms. Yeah. And has to duck to get under the door. Yeah. And Not a well-built spaceship. Yeah. Why didn't he build a bigger door? No yeah, idea. Exactly. Um, but he kind of hovers there and then disappears. Yeah. 
because then all the children come out yeah. along with well no the pilots come out first yeah and then all the other people that have been abducted come out yeah and then the children aliens come out and it's kind of like what happened to the guy with the long arms the jack skeleton kid where did he disappear to so i don't know whether or not he was the pilot whether he was their emissary um i I don't know or maybe they were just showing off all of the various species that lived on board this craft right so it wasn't just one set of aliens it was a community of aliens you see i couldn't work out whether it was a case of they couldn't afford to do the special effects for that same alien. <laughs> so we'll get some kids in and then we'll try and show a new version of him at the end that is the same alien. It's, it's almost like we want you to believe there's only one type of alien, but we can't afford to make it look that way. I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> they outsourced the creation of the aliens. <laughs> and on the day of filming, the first alien was delivered and they just went, what the... Really? <laughs> Really? <laughs> there are poles holding his hands and his legs up. Really? <laughs> I'm Steven Spielberg. I directed Jaws and Duel. And you've given me this? This um, is worse than the shark. It <laughs> might not even work. He was just like, don't. <laughs> right, well, not we again. used that one once. We paid half a million pounds for it. We're using that once. <laughs> Yeah, you could be right. Yeah, I think that's what probably <laughs> happened. Right, that's rubbish. You go and get some kids' clothes from whatever Walmart. You go and get some paint and paint funny eyes on them. Right, that's it. Twelve <laughs> kids running around, make it look like you're aliens. Good, well done. There's fifty dollars there for you. <laughs> I think those aliens then went on and did the uh, background recording for Pink Floyd's "Another Brick in the Wall." They were the school children. <laughs> It's very possible it's the same group of aliens. Maybe they stayed. That's possibly. Richard Dreyfus went off into space with the long, tall guy. No, they did. The they were in exchange. Yeah, they formed the backing group for Pink Floyd. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I mean, talking of um, effects, I mean, the end of it is... Yes. Right. I remember it in the cinema, amazing yeah. effects. Yes. Amazing effects because the sound was stunning. Yes. Stunning sound. Yes. Um, I mean, whoever did the sound—I don't know who did the sound—but it, it was brilliant. Yeah. Um, but there's there are some really bad bloopers, like um, when you meet all the aliens when they first come down. That's all brilliant. That's handled really well. I mean, crikey, you genuinely think that they're there. <clears throat> yeah. And, and, and that you know that that is a real. My word, look at all these different ships coming down, or they know yeah, it's yeah. safe, so they're coming down, they're showing off and they're showing all their lights, etc. And then they fly off, yeah. and then it all goes quiet, and we know something's gonna happen because of yeah. just dramatic music. Yeah. And the space well, then it the goes silent. The mothership. Yeah. But the thing is, the mothership's upside down. Yes. And and it's almost like for it to be upside down, it's so tall, it would be dragging on the ground at that angle. Yeah. In fact, that's a really badly filmed angle. It looks like it's coming out of the ground. Obviously, it's not. Yeah. Um, so there's the, there's a really bad scene there where yeah. it starts to appear. This underneath this jellyfish kind of appearing over Devil's Tower, coming up, and it's like, no, that's wrong. You've got the perspective wrong on that. Yeah. Um, and then of course it comes over, and this is amazing, fantastically 
yeah designed spaceship i mean really what a well-designed spaceship oh it's amazing yeah yeah for space you know yeah moving that through atmosphere most bits would come off yeah definitely but, you know here definitely. they seem to seem to have coping with all that and it, and it's a spaceship that you've never seen before you haven't no it's not it's not a round saucer it's not all the things that you expect to see no, it's completely and utterly a city yeah it is isn't it yes it um and so this city appears and then you don't realize it returns upside down yeah you come down and facilitate meeting everyone else and it's not the only ship that spins around because when you see the original three the middle one of that does that yeah. same thing of yeah, yeah. spinning round to show you it's spun round. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. This perspective's terrible on it. And if it really done that, there'd been bits of earth being flown up all over the place, wouldn't there? Oh, oh God, yeah. yeah. Crashes and bangs and whatever else. I like the fact that he has humour with, with uh, spaceships. Yes. Going back to the original three, you've got yes. the two, obviously, um, mummy and daddy spaceships coming yeah. along. And then you've got the third one, which kind of the is all trailing light. around. And... <laughs> <laughs> it's like the... the, the errant kid that's just falling yeah, around it's, or it's, the dog or something that's chasing them yeah. where's <laughs> mom and dad gone over there <laughs> <laughs> off we go yeah but so again brilliant movie. brilliant use of sound in that scene because the yeah. other three ships have gone yeah this massive one appears yeah and it's coming down and the sound cuts and they do their do 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 and it just replies with a big and that's the only sound there is for ages. And it's like that, whoa. Okay, what happens now? And you, you know, and I think it then cuts back to Lacombe, who kind of looks and goes, not sure what we're supposed to do now. Let's just try playing the sound again and see yeah, what yeah. happens. And they then start that conversation up and get the whole conversation going with the, the music, which is yeah. an amazing... I think one of the other scientists says, it's first day at school, they're teaching us how to communicate. Yeah. And it is very much... I'm just going to keep repeating these same things, repeat them back to me, repeat them back to me, and they do it again and again and again for ages. And isn't it amazing that they're capturing all this on tape? Yeah. You know, yes. It's not, the, it's not a computer or anything like that, it's tape. And then at one point they say, right, the uh, machine's taken over. You know, yes. Up until that point, it's kind of been a Dr. Fives kind of character playing an organ at the back, right, <laughs> either mounted. <laughs> and then his hands yeah, come off. They couldn't afford John Michel Jarre, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that They um, had too many Frenchmen in there already. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, they let the machine take over, and you say, well, yeah. and we're recording this. Well done. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll listen back to it later. Again, back to the Michael Bay version, you know, they just had the mobile phones up, wouldn't they? And they'd Shazam it and they'd get the music back from yeah, the yeah. internet and just play it again. And then there would and be a dance dance routine and with the hands, yeah. <laughs> the hand Almost like a thriller kind of like version. <laughs> so what when the kids the kids come out and they're big mushy pea heads, they yeah, just yeah. do a little dance to then. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, led led by Nicki Minaj and um, <laughs> That's a very different film. It really, <laughs> it really is. is. <laughs> it's a kind of Men in Black version, isn't it? Yes, yes. Will Smith comes out and does a rap over the top. And... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did you spot that there is another future film star in the crowd in the final scenes? Do you mean Mr Lance Hendrickson? Yes. Who appears there standing as one of the agog scientists. Just His name at... is Richard in this. 
Oh, does he actually have a name? That's a name. Oh, right. I didn't realise. I saw him standing in the crowd and I thought, is that Lance Henry? I'm sure it is. It does look yeah. very like him, definitely. But, yeah. yeah, he then goes on to be an android in um, Aliens. Uh, I think we've kind of covered the film. We have, haven't we? Um, I think we need to, One thing is just to talk about the relationships that Spielberg formed as a part of this film. Um, yeah. You know, John Williams. Yeah. Who would work with him many times in the future. I mean, can you imagine a better pairing? I mean, oh. I don't think we have that now. Perhaps... We have, um, you know, some of the Icelandic... Elfman and Burton. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's that's a really good pairing. Similar type of pairing of... Yeah. The the visuals that Tim Burton puts out with Danny Elfman's music. I can't imagine anyone else scoring for Tim Burton. In fact, the films where Elfman hasn't scored from, they're not quite the same. Can you, if you were going to recommend this film to someone who hasn't seen a film for years, how would you sum it up? in, say, 30 seconds to make me want to go and watch this film? I'd say it's the story of discovery of a man who has... He has a yearning inside himself that he can't put a name, idea or anything to, and it's a discovery... It's him discovering that inner calling through the medium of, of stuff that people would probably not expect, but actually it's about finding who you are, why you are on this earth, and what your purpose is. Brilliant. That sounds like something that might be worthwhile watching. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. Same to you. And thank you for making me think about my favourite film. It's been great. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Many thanks to Mick for doing that conversation with me. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed it. Next week, I will be talking to Kirsty Ford about the film The Fall. Here is her quick summary of that film. The Fall is a poignant drama about love, loss and friendship disguised as a fantasy adventure film with some of the most breathtaking landscapes you're ever likely to see in your life. Hopefully The Fall sounds like a film that you might like to see. The conversation with Kirsty will be as this one was with Mick, a very spoilerific conversation, so it might be worthwhile watching The Fall before listening to that podcast. See you back here again next week for that interview. Goodbye for now. Finally, thanks to Acast for hosting the website and to Max Smith for the theme tune composition. To get in touch with the podcast, remember that website is www.myfavoritefilm.com. Thank you.